0: We sing a lot of old songs and it's kind of funny Benny and I were joking in the office one day about tradition and stuff like that and he assumes I don't like tradition. I do like a lot of traditions. I was joking with him. I don't remember what the topic was. It was something that we did that was my fault, I know that. It was something we did that was my fault that was was new and untraditional in our conversation, but I was joking with him because actually it was like a fifteen hundred year old tradition. So, you know, I said, No, my tradition's just older than yours and so we were joking back and forth about that. This is kind of the same thing. So we've sung Beethoven, we've sung Handel, we've quoted Francis of Assisi. The song that we're going to, well, we're all not going to sing it, because I I won't make you try that, but uh, the song that we're looking at this morning is actually even older, and uh, we'll get to that in a minute. First, let's go to 1 Kings, which is even older than that, right? We don't start too many Christmassy-themed sermons in 1 Kings. For one, the, the, a lot of the correlation between things that happen in First Kings and things that happen in Luke one and two and three are more like, uh, well, they're more like what Herod was doing, you know, slashing people and all that kind of stuff. It gets kind of gruesome. There's a story in First Kings 17 that I, it, it is reflected. I don't think on purpose, but it is. It's reflected in this hymn, and it's reflected in why Jesus came in the flesh in the first place. So First Kings chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 8. Then when the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, And bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Not See why we don't usually read this at Christmas? you kind got to get it, right? But this story is fascinating, so we'll, we'll catch back up with it again in a second. But you've got the prophet Elijah who is told to go and live in this town and God says, listen, there's a lady there, she's going to take care of you. You go and find this lady, it'll be fine. He goes and he finds the lady. And he has a conversation that the beginning of it almost sounds, coincidentally maybe, I don't know, uh, almost sounds a lot like John chapter 4. Would you get me something to drink? And he says, You know, could you could you get me something to drink? Oh, and, and by the way, while you're getting that, because he is a man, he's a prophet and he's there on God's path, but he is still a guy. So he says, Oh, by the way, I'm hungry too. And he says, Isn't that just wrong? And he says except that in this case he's he's trying to teach her something. But he says, You know, could you get me something to eat too? And the lady says, And I, you know, scripture, you you, you want to know what kind of tone they set it with? I'd love to know the tone this lady answers him with. At at first, she's being hospitable and kind, as was her nature and her culture. You know, hospitality ranked way high in Middle Eastern culture at the time and still. And so you kind of wonder at this point, because it seems like she turns to him and it's like, Are you kidding me? Really? Look, all we've got, I don't even have any bread made. We've got a little oil and we've got a little bit of flour, and it's just enough, I'm going to go home I'm going to bake my son a biscuit, and we're going to die. You still want that bread? You know, there's probably some of you who have heard that at home before. Mm-hmm. So she does that, but look what happens. Verse 13. And Elijah said to her, "Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me." Well, stop right there. You wonder what's going through her head now. So he, he says in this gracious tone, No, it's okay. Just, you know, go home and, and, and bake the bread. Do what you're going to do. Go ahead, go break that loaf. But I'm going to need you to bring me a bite first. And then go ahead. <laughs> that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Y'all go ahead and go home and eat and die. But could I have a bite first? You wonder. It's a good thing she let him finish the sentence. Some, you know, some of us would have gotten a frying pan to the head before we finished the, part, the good part about what he's going to say. And he says, and afterward, make something for yourself and for your son. Four, verse 14, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and she did as Elijah said. That's an impressive statement right there, isn't it? Because she doesn't have necessarily know this guy from Adam. A guy shows up, says he's a prophet of God. Maybe she knows by reputation, maybe she doesn't. And he says, listen, this is what God has said. If you make this loaf of bread for me, and as long as I stay with you, it's not going to run out. There's no logical reason for her to trust that. Because it doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. Flour doesn't work that way. You know what it's like when you get to the bottom of the flour thing. You have to go to the grocery store. Not, oh, it'll just refill itself. And if somebody walks into you, and you're almost out a flower, and it's your last, and they say, could you bake me something and give me my part first, but don't worry, God's going to refill your thing, you would look at them, not like she did, I think, maybe like she did at first, but she goes. It's an incredible act of faith that she does there. She went, did what Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. By the way, household usually in Bible means not just her and her son, not just her and her son and Elijah, her and her son and Elijah and everybody else that dropped by on a regular basis during the week. That's kind of the Bible meaning of household. So we don't even know how many people were really eating off of this loaf of bread made from all this flour and everything else. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So you have this, this interesting story about Elijah and this widow and her son. We're going to look at another part of it here in a second. And why do we look at this when we're looking at Jesus' birth? Why would we look at this when we're talking about Christmas and a, and a Christmas carol? Here's why. The Old Testament is full of moments that are meant to have a, a meaning that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, it happens from the very first pages of Genesis that you have, uh, whether it's a prophecy uh, or or just an action. Sometimes people identities, you know, uh, David King David becomes himself a symbol of the coming Messiah because the Messiah would come through David and would be a king like David, and so there's there's all these. People, events, happenings, prophecies in the Old Testament that point forward to Jesus. Now prophecies are one thing. There's another topic called type and shadow. Or it may be called shadow and reality. Type and shadow. Uh, this is, it's a Bible study term and, and I know, some of you, it's the Charlie Brown voice. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But listen, this is cool. This is really cool. You go outside on the sidewalk on a day. And there may not be many shadows today. It's kind of overcast. Go out on a normal Texas day. And what do you see on the sidewalk? James, suffering from the heat, dying in his own... No, you, you look down at the sidewalk and you see your shadow, right? So, you go out there, you see your shadow. No one confuses the shadow for the reality, but every shadow has... A reality. Okay, there is something that is blocking enough light to cast a shadow, and that something is what's real. The shadow is just something that tells you there's something there. Right? If you are the other day, the other day, uh, D dropped by our house to give us a list uh, for those food boxes back there. Well, I was in the in the family room, and I was just I don't remember what I was doing. Watching? T- I don't know what I was doing. And out of the corner of my eye. I saw something on two legs. The shadow pass across the blinds on the window, and I thought, hmm, "What was that?" <laughs> you know. Well, I look, and the reality was already gone. The shadow was still there, but I could tell there's a human being on my driveway. You know. And so I, I went to the window. Oh, it's D, Okay, so that's fine. But just seeing the shadow isn't enough, is it? It alerts you. It tells you something's coming. Someone's coming. Right? Something is there. In horror movies, it's never good, right? You see the shadow. It's always some animal looking thing goes across the screen, like Jurassic Park and velociraptors and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't, it was D. Much nicer than a velociraptor. And so, but you know, someone, something, something's about to happen. In the Old Testament, they were constant from the very beginning, these shadows. that that showed, it just kind of foreshadowed, it was always vague. Sometimes the people at the time didn't even know that that's what it meant. The book of Hebrews is full of references to Old Testament shadows. He uses the term Old Testament shadows where the reality was Christ or the reality was the church or the reality was the kingdom of God that was to come. And it's just a constant pointing forward. It's to build anticipation. It's to help you understand sort of what's coming. And in this moment, I think we might be looking at one of those. I can't say for sure, but it seems to me this is what we're kind of looking at. You have a man, a man of God, who is there as a prophet with this lady. And she learns that his presence, the presence of a man of God, brings the presence of God. And the presence of God in her home led to her provision, her needs being met, the survival of her son. In the verses that follow, you get another one, her son gets deathly sick and, and dies. And Elijah raises her son. Let's look at it right quick. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Okay, like us, sometimes... You go through something rough. You think, man, I've been trusting God and leaning on God and He's been taking care of me. And she's seeing this in a way that is well and truly miraculous. And she's got a strong faith at this point. And yet when her son dies, her gut reaction is, God, what is the deal? You said we were going to be taken care of. And yeah, bread's fine, but what good is bread for my son if my son dies? What's going on here? She has you know, just kind of one of those, like a spiritual panic attack, right? Just... Doesn't understand what's going on. You've come to me and bring, uh, to bring my sin to remembrance, to cause the death of my son. And she's saying that because typical of the day, she thought that anything that bad happened might be the result of something she'd done wrong in the past. It wasn't the case. But that was, that was kind of the way people thought at the time. Verse 19, Elijah says to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? See, even Elijah doesn't understand what's going on. That's true. Even prophets sometimes don't understand what's going on. So don't feel bad if you don't. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came, came into him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said, Now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord the, or the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth there are circumstances in the gospels Jairus' daughter the centurion's daughter where Jesus does the exact same things and the response was exactly the same now i know that what you have said is true And in in the book of John, John makes pains to say over and over again and to make it obvious that the purpose of all those miracles and those resurrections that Jesus did and the healings that Jesus did was to get that reaction, that we would know that Jesus was the Messiah and that the things that He taught and said were from God and were true and we could trust them and that by trusting them, we would come to believe. John says in chapter 20, 30, and 31, that was the thing. He says, Jesus did a whole lot of stuff, more than we can write down now. But he says, these I've written that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. It was the purpose of those miracles at the time. And I think we're seeing in both these things a foreshadowing of the Messiah that would come. That's... Uh, why they, they hoped so much when they would talk about, and Jesus says this was fulfilled in John the Baptist, but when they would talk about the return of Elijah, that's why. Because some of the things that happened during his ministry were foreshadowings of a hope that they really longed for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And all of it was ultimately pointing to a Messiah who would come to save all mankind. And that brings us to our song for today. It's called Panis Angelicus. That's Latin. It means the bread of angels. I don't know. Anybody here know this song? Jesse, you know this song, don't you? No. I stumped. I shouldn't say stumped. I shouldn't. I know better. I got in trouble the last time I said that. You would think I would learn. Well, it's already out there anyway. So I did. That's hard to do because Jesse knows a lot of Jesse knows a lot of songs and Jesse knows a lot of old songs. Too. I don't. I don't know. The, you know, getting the name to that tune war on old hymns with Jesse, and it might be rough. Rough game, but this one is old. 1263 ish. You know what I did? I wrote all that stuff down. But I put it. It's on you version. You'll have to look on. I would have to too. I guess. It's all on there. But Thomas Aquinas, a little, Aquinas is a little town in Italy where he was from. He wrote this song around. Tw- yes, 1263. There it is, right there. Uh, he wrote this song as part of a celebration of the sacrifice of Christ, the body he gave, and the blood that he shed. It was all centered around a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Okay, And so he wrote this song. The song, of course, in Latin, is translated on the right. Uh, I guess I could, I, I'll try to sing it for you, but I'm going to turn the mic back off if you don't want that. Uh, is, uh, let me read the English first so that you can get it. In your heads. The bread of angels becomes the bread of mankind. The bread of heaven brings all our prefigurations to an end. Oh, what wonder the poor one, the one who serves, the one who is humble, all partake of the Lord. Here's another verse. Okay, that's back on. But it it goes like that. So it's an old song. You feel it's old? That tune was written in the 1800s, a little after the mid-1800s, by a guy named Cesar Frank. And that's the tune that most people know. It's sung by people like Pavarotti, which you did not get the privilege of this morning, uh, and Sting. And by the way, that's a duet. <laughs> Look that one up on your YouTube. Pavarotti and Sting sa- sang it as a duet. Uh, that's unusual. He, I also saw he's, he sang Ave Maria with uh, Bono, so figure that one out. Apparently Pavarotti, a big 90s rock fan. But the words are incredible. You know, why would a song in a dead language stick around for 800 years? Because the words have such depth. Let's look at him again and think about this in terms of why Jesus came. The bread of angels, and he's talking not about bread, not just bread of the Lord's something. He's talking about Jesus, okay? The bread of life. Jesus says in the book of John, I am the bread of life. The bread of angels. Comes to be, becomes the bread of mankind. What will sustain us but the presence of God? What sustained the widow as Elijah stayed in her house? It wasn't Elijah. What sustained the widow was her faith in the Word of God that had promised her that if she let uh, Elijah stay in her home, God would provide and take care and nourish her, her son, and their family. And God kept His promise, didn't He? And that is what it talks about next. The bread of heaven brings all our, that's a weird word, prefigurations, but there's not a great English word to put, to put that to. All our prefigurations to an end It basically means that in Jesus, the bread of heaven, in Jesus, we see all of those shadows come into reality. Everything we'd looked forward to, everything we'd hoped for, everything we kind of saw vaguely as a shadow, we now see fully in Jesus Christ that when He came, He made everything that God had promised real. Not hope, not wish, real. And all those things that we didn't quite understand as we watched the history of Israel unfold and the promises of the Messiah unfold and, and you know, all those prophecies in Isaiah and Zechariah about the Messiah and how he would come and when and where and all of these things. You know, Zechariah is the one who said, He will come be born in Bethlehem. He will ride on the colt of a donkey, talking about the triumphal entry. All of these things, it's real. That's what this song is about. Just our focus on in the supper, on the reality of Jesus coming in the flesh the reality of his presence in our life, we no longer see shadow, we see reality. Again, that's actually the theme of the whole book of Hebrews, that in Jesus, all these things that you thought were so important before, those were just shadow. The reality and the full blessing is really in Jesus Christ. That's the theme of the whole book. He says, oh, what wonder, uh, what, what a miracle, that the poor one, the one who serves, we get our word, you can see, poe, Paris, popper, that's how we would say that, the one who serves, the one who is humble, and that humble is not just the attitude of being a humble person. It's a person who's in a lowly situation. The one who is humble, everybody gets to partake of the Lord. There's not a, that's why this song is, is, is tied to Christmas. There's nothing Christmassy in the lyrics. There's nothing about that, and it wasn't even written for that. But it's because it focuses us back on what really matters. Because it's not string and tinsel, it's not sales, it's not toys, it's not any of that stuff. What it's really about is Jesus came in the flesh. He didn't come for a set of people. He didn't come for a few people. He didn't come for people who had it all together. He didn't come just for the rich. He didn't come just for the poor. He didn't just come for a middle class. He came for everybody. He didn't come just for the people in America or the people in the West. He came for everybody. And this song celebrates that when we come to the table of the lord we focus on the christ who came the christ who lived the christ who died so that all could live just like the widow his presence changes everything we go from a state of desperation to a state of blessing because of the presence of god and our trust in his word look over at john chapter 6 in john chapter 6 he calls himself The bread of life, right? This is where we get that from. Let me flip over there too while I'm at it. Before we read the passage that's up there, I'm going to go back. His critics had said to him, in verse 31, Our fathers ate men in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread "...from heaven, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall not, shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet do not believe." Let's skip down to verse 52. "...the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Okay. They had a reaction to this that I think probably sometimes if a visitor hears us read this here this morning goes, I'm not sure what we just read, you know? Because Jesus is sitting there going, You gotta eat me. You gotta eat my flesh. You gotta drink my blood. And if you don't eat my flesh and you don't drink my blood, you have no part of me. And if you don't eat my flesh and if you don't drink my blood, you have no part of the Father. And you gotta eat my flesh and you gotta drink my blood. And people at the time looked at that and said, "Ah, I was with you on a lot of this. Man, I think I'm out right now. This is weird. Things took an odd turn because they're taking him pretty literally and he's meaning it, you know, in a, in a symbolic sort of a way. And they, they don't, they don't quite Catch at first. Jesus clears it up. Now I will say that there's there's controversy over what does Jesus mean here. A lot of Christian history, and I'm not going to argue either side, I don't guess this morning, but I'll show you what I think. The, a lot of Christian history says he was talking about the Lord's Supper, that if you do not eat the bread and drink the cup, if you're not faithful in that observance, then Jesus is telling you what that's all about. Here are the consequences. That to have fellowship with me, you need to take part in this covenant meal all the time. Now that's actually, I will tell you, that's actually in, and we're using the broadest term possible Christian here. In Christendom, that's the way I like to say that. In Christendom, that's the majority view. I'm going to tell you that straight out. But let me, let me show you what Jesus says, and it's, it's where I lean. Okay, the other is actually still quite important and has a lot of depth and a lot of meaning, and I get it. But let's let Jesus interpret Jesus, and I think, I think we'll see what he means. So let's start in verse six, no, 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe uh, who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless granted him by the Father. So look back there again at verse uh, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We sing a song. Go to another old song. We sing a song about uh, breaking bread by Galilee. And it's sung all the time right before the Lord's Supper. Break thou the bread of life, right? Break thou the bread of life. You know what that song really is about? It's not about that bread. Not In a sense, yes. But it's not about the Lord's Supper. When he says to bless it as to bless the loaves by Galilee, he's still not talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about what he just said he was talking about in verse 62. It is the wor- his words that are spirit and are life. Ultimately, Jesus, when he's talking about that we have to have the, his body and his blood, he's talking about we have to do what he talked about the first time the Lord's Supper was ever celebrated. When he said... Take this cup. It is the new covenant in my blood. We need to be in that relationship, in that covenant relationship with God, where, yes, we do eat the bread and we do drink the cup. But he's talking about something more. He says, I want you to believe my words. I want you to be- believe in them, trust them, live by them. Know that my presence in you is your greatest provision, and that I'm going to take care of you physically, spiritually, and in every other way. I want you to come, and I want you to follow me. That was his message in John 6. It's the message every time we lift the cup, every time we break the bread, we are saying, yes, I will. I will follow you. I trust you. I eat this bread and I drink this cup because I am keeping my promises just as you are keeping yours. We're in that covenant relationship with each other. There's one other song. Uh, that I want to look at as we close. This one I'm going to actually get you to sing with me, all right? Uh, Oh, Holy Night. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. But we did not look at verse 3, okay? In verse 3, there is the same theme as Ponis Angelicus, except this one's in English. This time, it's actually a French song itself. Uh, But I'm not going to make you sing, you know, if you heard me speak French, here's one thing you know. The only French I know is uh, Grey Poupon. And that's American, okay? And that's American. So verse 3 of O Holy Night, I love the lyrics. Look at this. It fits right in with the ending of Pontius Angelicus where he says the real miracle is that the poor, the slave, the humble all get to come around the table. It's not reserved for the powerful. It's not for those who lift themselves above. It's not reserved for the Pharisee, the Sanhedrin, or the Sadducee. It's all of us who get to come to this table and share together regardless of our station in life. And verse 3 of O Holy Night celebrates the same thing. Truly He taught us to love one another. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Chains shall He break, for the slave is still our brother. And in His name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise His holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh praise his name forever his power and glory evermore proclaim his and that says the same things. Let's go back to the beginning. We're going to sing this one together. We can. And I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand for this even though Curly's got a stander right after it. And you just go right ahead. You can't sing Oh Holy Night. Pavarotti never sat down. That's what I noticed. So We celebrate all these things because Jesus has come. Who cares what the date, who cares what time of year. Jesus has come. And we celebrate in the bread. We celebrate in the cup together all the time. Because it's so worthy what he's done to bring us grace. To bring us glory. To share his honor regardless of where we come from. No matter how broken Uh, I was thinking earlier. This is kind of like I used to have. I don't remember what music service it was. Maybe it's a dead feature on iTunes. I can't remember. Uh, But there were there were sections in. I think it was the iTunes story where you had tracks that everybody knew of a particular artist. So let's say Johnny Cash. You had tracks of like uh, uh, the Ring of Fire. Everybody knows the Ring of Fire. But then you could click over on deep tracks, and it gets into songs that that had lyrics that were were much fuller, deeper, obviously. And, and it might be lesser known, maybe not. Some of them pretty popular. And it's kind of like going from the Ring of Fire to that last album he did. Remember the last one where everything was centered around his brokenness, around his redemption, and around the grace of God? He talked a lot about mistakes that he had made, regrets that he had. But also he talked about that Jesus had pulled him through all this mess and all of this brokenness and things that he was still to his dying day just absolutely ashamed of. But God had provided a way in Jesus Christ. The, these songs, they're kind of like the deep tracks section. Oh, Holy Night and Pontius Angelicus. We don't sing them. With one I don't even find an English singable translation. People just stick with it in the Latin for whatever reason. Because it's kind of like the deep tracks. To celebrate that Jesus became the bread of life. To feed everyone. Regardless of where you come from. Regardless of your station. Regardless of what you're going through. You find peace. You find joy in Jesus. This is the morning that you need to lay everything at the cross of Christ and become a covenant child of His where you take His bread and you take His cup and you live in communion with Him. And we invite you to that as we sing this morning.